Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. We have three words that we build our programming around here at Southside. It's member, neighbor, guide. It's member, neighbor, guide. So member means it's the way that we interact with one another, people inside of the fellowship, people inside of the church. It's the ways that we take care of one another. We have multiple ways of doing this. Sunday mornings is one of those ways that we interact and care for one another. Uh, We also have hospitality nights that meet once a month. And we have discipleship pods that meet every other week. You know, hospitality nights are where there's multiple families that are meeting together and getting to know one another over the long haul with a gentle rhythm of monthly gatherings. Uh, Discipleship pods are where you go a little bit deeper and the conversation is a little bit more intimate. Uh, It happens every other week in smaller same-gender groups. These are some of the ways that we exercise being together as members of one another is what scripture says. And guide is, we haven't talked a whole lot about that, but we will get into that in the future, but it's, it's how you walk with someone side by side toward a particular destination. And so what does it look like for you to come alongside a believer who hasn't been following the Lord as long as you and help them move in a specific way, down a specific path, towards a specific destination of maturity in Christ. That's what a guide is. Neighbor is actually relating to people outside of our church community. It's relating to people outside of our Christian universal family. It's people who have not yet put their faith in Christ. And one of our responsibilities is to live and to communicate the gospel. So today, today's teaching is focusing on what does it look like to be a good neighbor? We have member, neighbor, guide. Now we're focusing on neighbor. So I have in your outline here, what is our mission? So let's start with what Jesus' mission was. What was his emphasis? What did he spend his time doing when he came? Well, he actually gives us his mission statement in Luke 19.10. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Uh, Notice this isn't a passive thing. Jesus didn't come up, you know, come to earth and set up, uh, you know, some some headquarters where um, he had people hand out flyers and everyone just showed up the headquarters and he just waited there for everyone to show up and come to him. Jesus was out and about doing life. He was seeking. He was actively looking for people who are outside of the kingdom, inviting them to be a part of the kingdom. That was his mission. And he invites us to share in that same mission. And he communicates that in a passage that most church folks are familiar with, and that is Matthew 18, or Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Now here's a side note. When 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 you are teaching in a church, it's not like you're teaching biology or something, where you're teaching A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. It's all new stuff that builds on top of one another. When you're teaching in a church, 
It's more A, B, C, A, B, C, A, B, C, A, B, C. It's keeping it focused and tight around the essentials of the gospel. Otherwise, you get into some really weird end times fascination and teachings of what all the different things mean in the temple. It just gets really strange. You have to really focus in on our life orbits around the gospel. A, B, C, A, B, C, A, B, C. And you're constantly bringing out new nuances and new light on that particular topic, but we don't get away from the gospel or else things will get very strange. So you've heard Matthew 28, 18 through 20 before. We're gonna get there again because this is what we are about as a church. It's in your notes, let me read it. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. You can circle all nations, draw an arrow to the margin, and write Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Because in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God tells Abram, In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the Great Commission is a nod back to Genesis 12. All the families of the earth, all nations will be impacted by this gospel message. Jesus goes on, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So not only was it Jesus' responsibility, not only was it Jesus' mission to seek and to save the lost, he's inviting us into that mission as well. We also see in this that, as one of my seminary professors said, Christianity is designed to be lived on the go. It's designed to be lived in the context of your current circumstances, whether you are a student, retired, working, um, a full-time parent. Christianity is designed to be lived out in that context. My best friend from high school, uh, years ago, he was, at the time, living in Atlanta and going to a really dynamic church, and then he moved to Austin worked for an oil company, and he, now he lives in Chicago. But he, he, you know, he's, he's very skilled, very gifted, high-capacity person, like some of you guys. And he had this goal of being a CEO. He wanted to be a CEO. And he started getting really passionate about Jesus, and he asked me, he's like, I'm, I'm kind of torn. Like, even if I don't become a CEO, I'm still going to be you know, advancing, hopefully, in my responsibilities, in my realm of oversight. And I'm thinking maybe I should just go into ministry. What do you think about me leaving the business world and going into church world? And I was like, you're nuts, man. Absolutely not. You are in ministry. You are doing ministry right, right where you are. Because there's, there will be people in all aspects of your business who are believers and who attend church, and there will be people who, in all aspects of your business who aren't. 
And the people who are not, I'm never going to have access to them. They're not just going to show up at the church and, and start talking to me about Jesus. But you will. There will be people in your boardrooms, in your workplaces, people who work for you, people who you work for that are not part of the kingdom. You should bring the church to them. You don't have to invite them to the next outreach at your church. You be the church. You have the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. That's all you need. So do what you're doing and be missional in that context. And that's a lesson for all of us. What would it look like for you just to be a faithful presence for Christ in your life as it is right now? In Mark 16, 15, we're given even more specifics of what it looks like to make disciples of all nations. He says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So if you like fill in the blanks, here you go. Here's your first two. Our mission is to make disciples of Jesus by proclaiming the gospel. Our mission is to make disciples of Jesus by proclaiming the gospel. So what is the gospel? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take just a minute or so, and in your own mind, in your own thinking, or you can even write it down on your paper if you'd like, I want you to define the gospel. Every individual in here, and maybe you have no idea what the gospel is. Maybe you've never heard of that. But, so you can just wait, and I'm going to clarify for you what it means. But everybody else, what is the gospel? Try to define it in your own, in your own thoughts for just a minute. I'm going to give you some space. Oh, yeah, if you're in elementary, <laughs> thank you, thank you, Chad. So if you're in elementary and you are just sick of this already, you can run out the back door and get to one of your classes, um, or you can have a parent take you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for reminding me. Or if you're an adult, now's the chance. You got, you got half an hour yet with me, so... All right, how'd you do on that? How many of you felt like it was, yeah, pretty clear? I think I got a pretty good understanding. Don't, you don't need to raise your hand, but just kind of look at me like, mm, do that. Mm. How many of you are like, I, I really struggle with that. Just look up at the ceiling so nobody knows that you're, I'll, I'll know, but nobody else. It's tough sometimes. I remember someone asked a, a group of um, youth pastors that question. We had to define the gospel, and, and we weren't very clear on it at the time. But it, I think the point of today, one of the points of today, is to get clear on that, or at least to give you some tools to get clear on that. And I can't recommend highly enough a book that I first read in 2010. This is a gospel primer for Christians. Now, some people think it's primer. I think the... Um, the the author intended this to be primer, which means you're looking into this and you're starting to understand different aspects of the gospel. This is a really cool book. It's fantastic, actually. So this guy who's a pastor, he went to seminary. He got a hold of this idea one day 
to start preaching the gospel to himself. If the gospel is the reality in which we live, he started teasing it out and how it affects different aspects of his life. And I want to read you a, um, just a paragraph from this. He said, God's gifts are all of grace. And there is nothing we can do to earn them. However, the wise believer will make sure he is positioning himself in the spot where God's gracious gifts are located. And the scripture teaches that all such gifts are located inside the gospel. Hence, the Bible tells Christians to be continuously established and steadfast in the gospel and to be refused, to refuse to be moved from there. That's Colossians 1.23. And what he does is he spells out in very easy, you know, one-page, half-page descriptions how the gospel affects um, your humility, uh, your battle with sin, um, the ways that you interact with other people. He just spells it out, and it's very biblical, and it's very, very good. A Gospel Primer for Christians by Milton Vincent. So what is, in fact, the gospel? I want to read you an inscription that was found. It was written 2,000 years ago. I'm going to explain it a little bit as we go. But just, this isn't Bible. This is an inscription that was discovered. The providence which has ordered the whole of our life, showing concern and zeal. In other words, there's this overseeing presence or power out there that's overseeing our lives and all the details. That's what this is saying, all the details of our lives. That all-powerful overseeing thing that's looking and concerning itself with the details of our lives has ordained the most perfect consummation and fulfillment of human life. In other words, it has created, or he has created this perfect being by filling him with virtue for doing the work of a protector among men. Okay, so not only is this a perfect human being, he's also been assigned the task to protect all of humanity. And by sending in him, in this person, a savior for us and those who come after us. Now we're using the word savior. To make wars to cease, to establish peace and institute harmony everywhere. So this all-powerful person who has become our savior is going to create peace and harmony across the world. Then it says, the birthday of the Son of God was the beginning of the good news for the whole world that has come to men through him. Now here's the twist. That was written before Jesus was born about Caesar Augustus. It gives you an idea of how people viewed Roman emperors in that time. Now, for an Israeli shepherd tending his flock in the Fertile Crescent along the Mediterranean Basin 2,000 years ago, Caesar did not feel like good news. 
Caesar did not feel like the savior of the world. Caesar felt like a lot, like someone, if you were in the family, if you were in the empire, you were protected. I mean, a Roman citizen could go anywhere in the world and have the power and the force of the entire Roman empire following him as a shadow protecting him. No, they were untouchables. So an Israeli shepherd didn't feel like Caesar was his savior. I mean, it's one thing for a human being to call another human being the savior of the world, but it's an altogether different thing to have angelic beings, spiritual beings, light up an evening sky, giving news that there is a savior coming into the world. Otherworldly beings telling human beings that there is indeed a savior and it's not Caesar. That would be more convincing. And that's what we see in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, the Christmas passage. I'm going to read it again, and it's in your notes. How's everybody doing? Bathroom break, anybody? We good? Simon Says, we can play Simon Says. I say that every year. This time, nobody ever wants to play. You, not, you guys need to move or anything? We good? All right. Luke 2, 8 through 14. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And people, you know, whenever I talk about this, people say they want to see angels. Like a lot of times people want um, especially new believers, I just want to sign it. Just let me like see an angel or something. You do not want to see an angel. You, you would be on the ground terrified if you saw an angel today, unless it was disguised as a human being, which scripture gives a category for that. But an angel in its glory would be scary for you, for all of us. So here's an angel of the Lord about to deliver some news, the glory of the Lord shining around them, around the angel and that glory, that light, that power was meant to validate the message that this angel was about to deliver. Now, only a handful of people in Scripture got to see the glory of the Lord, this, um, this shining. And it was Moses. Um, it was Peter, James, and John when Jesus was transfigured on top of a mountain before them. I mean, only a handful of people got to see that type of glory. But the shepherds got to. Because God was validating the message that they were going to deliver. So what was the message? And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. There it is again, all the people, all nations, every family. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Sounds very similar to the inscription that was written about Caesar, doesn't it? What was the difference? The messengers. 
the first thing that we need to know about the gospel is the gospel, which means good news, and this is the next fill in the blank. The gospel comes to us from an altogether different realm. It's not man-made news. Comes to us from an altogether different realm. It's not man-made news. This is important because we need to understand that the gospel did not come from people. Humanity didn't just make this message up to give us, you know, give one another a sense of hope or a false sense of power or control. This was given to us, delivered to us from heaven. The next thing to know about the gospel, the next fill in the blank, the gospel was initially delivered to the nobodies of the world. If you were a shepherd at that time, you were considered to be failing at life. Do you know that? If you were a shepherd, you were failing at life in most people's perspective at that time. If this message were be to, to be delivered today and we were somehow given foreknowledge that this was going to happen, somehow we knew that a week from today, angels from another realm are going to come and deliver this crazy news that's going to be good news for all of the world. And we just, you know, we didn't know exactly where it was going to be, so we had to take a guess and say, okay, so they're probably, where would I, where would I come if I was coming from another realm and I was delivering news to earth that was really good news for everybody, that would bring great joy and harmony on the world, where would I deliver that news? You know, we'd probably guess some powerful location, let's just say Washington, D.C. So we know this message is coming, we don't know where it's coming, so we... We set up shop in Washington, D.C., and we bring all the most powerful people in the world there. So we're going to have the president there waiting to receive this news. And we'll have some foreign dignitaries. We'll have some five-star generals. Maybe we'll invite Elon Musk, who's like the second richest man in the world. He's a very interesting character. He's worth $168 billion. He'd be neat. Let's have him there. Maybe we invite Taylor Swift. We're trying to get all these people that the world is like, that person is amazing, and we're going to get them all there to hear this move so that they can be ambassadors and deliver this to the world. That's what we would do. But what we see in Luke 2 is the angels would leave all those people hanging and bypass all of them and go somewhere like Philadelphia's Kensington neighborhoods, which have been completely ravaged by drugs. I mean, you see pictures of the Kensington neighborhood and there's people that just look like they're stuck and can't move. And there's people who are trying to help. They kind of look like walking zombies. There's people who are trying to come around them and help and care for them and bring them hope. And people who are refusing to leave those neighborhoods with their families because they want to redeem it and restore it and fix it. There's believers in those neighborhoods putting in work. And these angels would come to a place like that and say, we've got really good news for you guys. That's the equivalent of them going to shepherds in some field. I mean, follow Jesus through Luke and see for yourself the type of people he hung out with. The gospel is for everyone. Everyone. C, the gospel is an invitation to live within the sphere of God's blessing. The gospel is an invitation to live within the sphere of God's blessing. When we share the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus with somebody, what we're inviting them into 
is a life that is personally shepherded by God. You're inviting them to live within this sphere of gracious oversight and provision and protection and blessing. Protection doesn't mean you won't die for your faith, but it does mean that Jesus is with you, comforting, sustaining, strengthening you every step of the way. This isn't health and wealth. This is God will provide all of your needs all of the time, no matter what. And it's not necessarily what you think it is, but God will provide and care for you. That's what you're doing when you share the gospel with someone, inviting them into this. You're inviting them to have a father who will never let them down, who never leave them. A brother and a friend in Christ who will be their king and savior and closest companion and the Holy Spirit who will walk with you through whatever you go through. That's what we're inviting people in when we share the gospel. So it's a big deal. D, aspects of the gospel. I want to get in some nitty gritty, what is, what is actually, what are the elements what are the ingredients of the gospel? The gospel is like a hope diamond. Like there's a lot more than I'm going to be able to say here today, but it's like the hope diamond. I've used this illustration. I've heard it before from someone else that you turn it in the sunlight and you see new beauty, new colors, um, new things the more that you turn it. It never gets old. It never gets dull. It never gets boring looking at this diamond. That's what the gospel is. So we're going to talk about ingredients of the gospel, and essential ingredients, but we're not going to be able to cover everything. So here's the first passage I give you, 2 Timothy 2.8. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. So Paul's talking to a young pastor. Remember this. This is priority. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. That solves all of your problems in life. If Jesus was raised from the dead, you have to do whatever he says. If, I, if Jesus was raised from the dead, you have to obey him. If Jesus was raised from the dead, he's your only hope of being raised from the dead one day. He was descended from David. He was descended from this family that was set aside, this culture, this nation that was set aside way back at the beginning of time in Genesis 12. That's an important aspect of the gospel that Jesus was raised from the dead. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. We were held hostage by Satan and the Father traded his son for us. There was an exchange Jesus was given as a ransom for our lives. It's also important to notice this says one God. There is one God. There is one mediator. And it doesn't make us guess. It tells us exactly and precisely who that is. The man, Christ Jesus. John Dixon has this really great quote. He says, if there is, if there is one Lord to whom all people belong and owe their allegiance... The people of that Lord must promote this reality everywhere. If it's true that the Bible is actually right, that there is only one God, 
There's only one mediator between us and that God, and that it is Jesus Christ, and we should promote that reality everywhere. Colossians 2, 13 through 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Every sin you've ever done, every sin you're currently doing, every sin you will ever do, every transgression, Jesus nailed it to the cross. When you put your faith in him, it's forgiven. You are released from the legal repercussions of your sin. And if there is anything you've done that you just feel like, um, I understand him forgiving me of those things, but this is in another category. You're saying that his sacrifice and that Jesus wasn't enough. And you don't understand the gospel yet. Everything. The man hanging on the cross beside Jesus, Jesus said to him, you will be with me in paradise today. Because the man acknowledged who he was. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, for I delivered you as of first importance, of first importance, ABC, 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 ABC. I delivered of you, uh, to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. You can, I mean, that's the gospel right there. Jesus died for my sins. Jesus died for your sins. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. Now, he keeps saying in accordance with scriptures because Paul's making a point to the Corinthians to say, this was predicted for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. The Old Testament predicted that this would happen. You just didn't see it. All of this was part of the plan all along. Jesus died, he was buried, and he was raised back to life. That's the gospel. What about our aspect of this? What's, what's our responsibilities in this? And our responsibility is faith in Christ who did the work. So Romans 4, 4 through 5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So if you put in an honest day's work, and you get an honest day's wage... That's not a gift. That's not grace. That's just you getting what you deserve. It's you getting what you earned. And Paul's saying this is different. He continues, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. If you are angry about the fact that someone can be a complete, violent, self-obsessed sinner their entire life and in their last days have their eyes open to the beauty and the glory of Jesus and they put their faith in Christ in the last days after living a terrible life and they get Freedom in Christ, they get to go to heaven, they get to be a part of this new creation when Jesus returns. If that upsets you, you don't understand the gospel. Or you think too highly of yourself. The gospel is for everyone. And the window is always open to the very last breath. It's the way that it works. 
because we don't deserve it any more than they deserve it. And if you think for somehow your life of goodness makes you more worthy for this message, you do not understand the gospel. You're still living based on your own goodness instead of Jesus's. Our righteousness are rags. You know that? All of our goodness apart from Jesus is worth nothing. All of our goodness with Jesus is worth everything and we will be rewarded for those things if we do them by faith in Christ. But the gospel's for everyone at any moment of their life. All right, it's also... Um, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 just emphasizes it's not by works again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I would encourage you on your own time just to read those last two passages. Um, and actually, I would encourage you to reread the, all of the passages that I provided. <clears throat> just begin to soak in these passages. Begin to ask the Spirit to make them real to you, to come alive to you. And spend time just ruminating. You know, the, one of the words that scripture uses a lot for thinking about pondering scripture is meditation. It means to ruminate, to chew over and over. Get all the nutrients out of a passage. That's what it means to meditate. I would encourage you to do that with all of these passages. Finally, how do we proclaim the gospel? A, we demonstrate there's your fill in the blank. We demonstrate the power of the gospel with our lives. We demonstrate the power of the gospel with our lives. So it doesn't stop there. We're going to get to the other part. I was sitting at a cabin with 11 other pastors at Grand Lake St. Mary's in western Ohio. There was a guy that was leading a, a retreat. He was like mentoring all of us. Some of us were youth pastors, some were lead pastors. And he did this exercise where we were supposed to sit in a circle and go around one by one and talk for five minutes about our lives. And the, the only rule he gave us is we can't talk about our churches. They're like, easy enough. We all start sharing our stories, talking about our lives. And one of the guys, when it was his turn, said, well, I pastor a church of about 350 people, and Mike, who was, the, who was leading the retreat, said, ah, 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 you got to start over. You can't talk about your church. He's like, okay, um, I live in whatever town in Indiana, and um, I was called there 20 or 15 years ago to preach at this church, and I, wait, 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 stop. You can't, can't talk about your church try again. And this guy was like, um, I, I don't really know what to say. So Mike said, are, are, are you married? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been married for 25 years. She's amazing. Yeah, she's, we can tell you really love her. She's, she's great. Um, you know, we get along really well. She leads the women's, oh, crap. Start over. Come on, man. So the guy sitting there, he had to start over again because he was going to say that his wife leads the women's ministry and he didn't know what to say. And, the, and so Mike said, do you have any kids? Yeah, three kids. Yeah, they're wonderful. Do you have any hobbies? It was like the saddest five minutes of my life. 
his church wasn't in a good place because his church was his God. His church was his idol. He was a very uninteresting person. And I remember thinking to myself, I would never in a million years want to be like this guy. Like his whole life is his church. And he treats it like his God. And those poor people probably feel this pressure to make sure that he feels okay every Sunday. And he doesn't do anything else. Lives with his wife. Their relationship isn't flourishing. Probably doesn't have a great relationship with his kids. There's nothing about him that would attract me to Jesus. There's an attractional element to Christianity. It just is. It's built into humanity that we are magnets for Christ. The way that we live ought to be somewhat attractional. When I transferred from Valpo to Hillsdale College in Michigan, there was a group of guys my last year in college that I thought were just amazing brothers, just really, really cool guys. Um, they didn't seem to get caught up in people-pleasing like I did. They didn't really care what people thought. They weren't We'd go out to fraternity parties and stuff, and they, they, would be, they were different. They didn't get caught up in a lot of the same stuff. They were tight. They were close. One of the guys invited me and my buddies from bas the basketball team to a Bible study at his house, and it was, a, it was a cool apartment. He had interesting things. He had, like, pictures on the walls of places that he's been. He had a fascinating life. He would have professors over at his house for Bible studies, and he was, like, just a couple years older than me. He, was, he had graduated from, from Hillsdale College and was working in, um, I forget what department, but he was working for the, the school. And when things fell apart in my life in some ways, he was the first one there, and his friends came around me and cared for me. I wanted to be like him. Like, I want to be like you. There's an attractional element to the gospel. We were meant to communicate the gospel. The gospel is meant to spread like a virus through lives. The glory of the gospel, the glory of God is man fully alive. That's Irenaeus. The glory of God is man fully alive. Here's in your notes the next blank. What part Part of what draws people to Christ is the way you live your life. Part of what draws people to Christ is the way you live your life. It's the John Wesley quote that I say all the time, I light myself on fire for Christ and people come to watch me burn. People should come to watch you burn for Christ. You see those two questions there, these are important. And I would, I would actually challenge you to spend some time genuinely thinking about these, because this talk is meant to be gone over in your notes after. You're not going to catch everything just listening to me. You're going to miss half of this. I understand that. So go back to these in your notes. And here are two questions that I would challenge you to think through. When people observe us, when people observe us, what does our life tell them about our God? What does the way that you live communicate about God? And two, 
If we removed the Holy Spirit from our life, would it look any different? We've asked this in different ways here at Southside. But if you removed the Holy Spirit from your life, would your life be any different? Are you living on your own gasoline or are you living on the Spirit's power in your life? What about you is different because the Holy Spirit is sustaining you and keeping you and empowering you? How are you different because of his presence in your life? If there is no difference, then that means you're living in your own power. It means you don't have the Spirit helping you. To flourish as Christians means more than just not sinning. It means you're getting more tender-hearted. You're getting more humble. You're getting easier to be around. It means you're beginning to do what's wise instead of what's comfortable. It means you're beginning to do what's loving instead of what's convenient. It means you're, you're considering other people as more important than yourself. It means that you have a life of serving others. It doesn't mean you have everything together, but it does mean that there's a sense of movement in that direction from a life that's empowered by the Spirit. Second thing we do is we adorn the gospel with good works. Uh, Titus 2, 9 through 11 says, teach slaves, and I just have to stop, we're not going to get into this, but it's not, um, it's not the type of slavery that you think of. When people say that the Bible approves slavery, that's absolutely ridiculous. This is ignorant, this is not true. So I want you to think of, when I say teach slaves, you can think of teach employees. Now it's a little bit, it's not quite that, but it's a closer than probably what you're thinking of. Teach slaves or teach employees to be subject to their masters and everything. This is practical Christian teaching. To try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Isn't that interesting? The way they live and interact with others can make this teaching about God attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. How is how you are living right now making the message of the gospel more attractive? Really? How's it making the gospel more attractive to others? So not only do we demonstrate the power of the gospel with our lives, B, we proclaim the power of the gospel with our words. We proclaim the power of the gospel with our words. You know that saying, speak the gospel, wait, speak the gospel always and sometimes use words or something like that? I think, it's, I, I, I think that's not exactly what the person who said it meant to say first, but second, that's, it's news. It's supposed to be communicated. That's the whole point. It's supposed to be spoken. You, you can be a great person your whole life and never mention Jesus, and it's not, a, it's, it's, sorry, it's not enough. At some point, you have to turn up the, this is a little awkward, you know, the social awkwardness and say, I just have to tell you why I feel this way. I just have to tell you why I have peace when everything else seems to be falling apart. I just have to tell you why I have hope, and it's a person. It's Jesus. You have to verbalize it. We have to say it. 
We proclaim the power of the gospel with our words. 1 Peter 3.15, this is a classic text for this, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's important. It's interesting to note in this verse that he assumes that people will ask you why you're so hopeful. I mean, that alone is convicting, isn't it? When's the last time someone said, why are you always so hopeful? Are you paying attention to what's happening in the world? Why aren't you hiding under your bed like everybody else? You're, why are you fine? Why are you stable? People should be asking us that. We ought to have a, an answer prepared. It also instructs us to be able to give a clear reason for our hope which will require some thought. And we ought to think through how are we going to communicate the gospel to our friends that ask us why we're so hopeful. It's not preaching a sermon to them. It's speaking in a way that is clear and is pointing to Jesus. One of my seminary professors said, train yourself to speak, to communicate, to write with lucid brevity. It's clear and it's brief. I'm not doing great with that today. But that's how we should respond to people when they ask us, why are you so hopeful? Well, let me tell you about Jesus and what he's done for me. Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. And then Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I'll just let that sit with you for a little while. And again, come back to that. This is a good passage to um, to use to kind of diagnose where you and Jesus are. Are you ashamed of him? Are you embarrassed of the gospel? Does it seem too simplistic? Is it, are your friends so intelligent that they're going to barrage you with questions and you're going to be embarrassed. You don't have to be able to answer every question. You don't have to have a science debate. <laughs> you just got to tell them what, what Jesus has done for you. Don't be embarrassed of the gospel. It's the power of salvation for everyone. Everyone who believes. Even your most cynical friend. Even your most cynical loved one. It's the power of salvation for everyone who believes. Don't be embarrassed, friends. I want to end with examples of how the gospel spread in the first century. This is from a seminary class. I haven't read this book, but my professor recommended it. It's Michael Green's book, Evangelism in the Early Church. And he, Michael Green does a really great job of talking about how the early church community was different than the rest of the world and what drew people into that community and what made them pliable and open to hearing the gospel. The first thing is loneliness. You know, people felt disconnected back then, too. This is in the first two centuries after Jesus died. People felt disconnected back then, too. You believe it? And they didn't even have phones yet. I'm always harping on phones with my girls, and I know it gets, they get sick of it. <laughs> I get sick of it. But there is a disconnection epidemic that's happening in the world which primes us for the gospel. It's perfect. But they were lonely back then, too. And people saw in... Christian communities, a depth of intimacy they didn't see anywhere else. 
Here's another one. The Fellowship of Christians was a huge draw. Uh, Felix, an author, wrote, in, it was either first or second century, he was writing a, a debate between a Christian and a non-Christian, and they're not sure if it's fiction or, or non-fiction, but he was having this debate, and these are the types of things that people said. The person who was not a Christian said to the Christian, you would have thought that one mind had been shared between the two. He's talking about Christians that had just met. Uh, a lot of times, Christians, if you were going through a, a town in those days, there would be a few Christian homes that would open up their home to travelers because it was unsafe for them to, to sleep outside of the city gates or even to try to find a place in the city. So Christians would say, we're opening up our homes. If you're traveling through, you know, come stay with us for the night. We'll feed you. We'll send you on your way. We'll practice hospitality. And so sometimes they would find other Christians. They would really make sure that they were good. They'd really take care of them. And this person is describing an interaction that he saw between a host and another, another person who was passing through, happened to be a Christian, and he's like, they act like they have the same mind. There was an immediate connection between the two. It was weird. It wasn't awkward. There was an immediate love between the two of them, and they just met. Isn't that weird? The same writer says that wherever Christians go, whether they know each other or not, they immediately love one another. He said, they love one another almost before they know one another. And he meant it to be disparaging. He meant it to be a rip. They, these people don't even know one another and they already love one another. He's describing Christians. You can go anywhere in the world in this brotherhood of sisterhood and sisterhood of people in Christ and there's an immediate connection that's unforced, natural, real because you both have the spirit of God, the spirit of love himself living in you, connecting you in a deeper way. Um, poor folks and women were a large percentage of converts. They weren't treated well in the ancient world, but they were given dignity in Christian circles. Um, Celsus, in an attempt to disparage, disparage Christians back then as well, said, Christian community is a place where the poor and the rich mingle. And it meant to be bad, you know, him saying that. Christian community, poor and rich people both mingle together. That's right. I think it's pretty cool. Definitely countercultural back then. Christian hospitality was another one. Christians spread family to family. Um, Christians were known for being the most hospitable people in the town. They would take anybody in. Christian as a burial society, what does that mean? Well, when a poor family um, couldn't afford, when someone died, they couldn't afford a burial, Christians would come around them and ship in, and they had these clubs and societies that would go around and make sure everyone got a burial. They didn't cremate back then, by the way, which is a little different, because they... They wanted to retain the dignity of the resurrection, so they didn't want to have anyone cremated. They wanted you buried as you were. Um, but they would help pay for each other's funerals. Christianity is a dining club and fraternity. They called them love feasts, which is a little weird. They had, they had, Christians had weird reputations because they called these things love feasts. They would get together and they'd have dinner together and then they'd have communion together. Sounded a little strange. But they enjoyed being together and they really cared for one another. Christians ought to be able to say to the world, life is good. It's good. You know, the things that God has given us, one another in particular, it's a good thing. It's worth celebrating regularly. Christian singing. There wasn't a lot of singing. There wasn't a lot of joy often in the ancient world. And Christians would sing. A lot of times in the first, second century, the Christians would go into a place and they would sing as a way of, um, they believed it would expel any um, I don't know, dark spirits. Um, they would sing often to 
um, kick out any evil spirits, even in people. That's one of the methods that they used was actually singing praise songs. Uh, Release from the control of fate. They believed that one wrong decision, fate would doom you. So they were always, people were always afraid to make decisions in that time, in that place. One mistake could ruin your life. Ah, so with Jesus. With Jesus, he can make good of anything. It was no longer fate overseeing their life. It was a man. It was a king, the most gracious king. Moral power, courage of Christian martyrdom. It speaks something to you when you're walking into arena and facing a lion and you don't flinch. A lot of people came to Christ in the Roman Empire because they saw fearlessness in the eyes of Christian martyrs. Not everyone died that way, but a lot of them did. There's some amazing, amazingly brave deaths that the Spirit enabled Christian martyrs to to endure. And people saw it, and they were amazed by it, and they came to Christ. Um, Jesus gave people meaning in the world. People would adopt. Uh, A lot of people would put babies by the big trash heaps outside of town, and Christians would go pick them up and adopt them. Open forums, there would be debates, late patristic passion dramas, so they would take the writings of the church fathers and they would turn them into plays and dramas and they would, they would do whatever, whatever it took to get the message of Jesus out, the message of the gospel. It comes down to this, friends. This is it. It comes down to really owning personally what the gospel is and how it has impacted you. And the more time you spend thinking about how has Jesus actually changed my life, you won't help but be able to tell other people. So I would recommend, again, this phenomenal resource is a great place to start, A Gospel Primer for Christians by Milton Vincent. But get into these passages. More importantly, get into the scripture that we shared today. Study for yourself what is the gospel. How has it impacted me? How has it changed me? And how can I communicate it clearly based on what God has revealed to me in scripture? Let me pray for us and we'll be done. Father, I pray that you would never allow the gospel to become dull and boring and meaningless to us. I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts more and more so that we live in awe and wonder of what you've given us in Christ and help us to become a church, a community of people who communicate that freely and generously and graciously to the world around us. Fill this place with people who are looking for the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.